right, welcome to episode 50 of 52 Founders. I'm Chrissy Costa, and this week I'm thrilled to be joined by Ryan Danahy, founder and CEO of Electric, an all-in-one IT support solution for small and mid-sized businesses. Electric combines chat platforms with AI to keep business-critical cloud applications and devices running smoothly, and at a fraction of the cost of traditional support providers. A serial entrepreneur, Ryan chose New York this time around for his startup's HQ, given the city's no-nonsense approach to growing real businesses. He's got a fantastic story to share, and I'm so excited for y'all to take a listen. And with that, here's Ryan. so much for being on my show today. I'm so excited to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So start by telling us about Electric and what it is. So Electric is the first company to have totally rethought IT services for small and mid-sized offices. So what does that mean? Basically, we've figured out that there's an automated way, a real-time way to deliver all the tech support that your company could possibly need um, directly in chat platforms like Slack. Um, so you don't have to hire somebody in-house or you know deal with some old school local contractor that charges you a gazillion dollars. I love this. I feel like so many people would listen to that and sigh with relief because everyone has one of those stories about Wi-Fi issues. You know, and it always sets you back from doing what you want to be doing. And so I'd love to know though, why now? Like, why did you think of this opportunity now? How did it come about? Yeah, that's a great question. So the short version is rewind back to the year 2013. I'm living in San Francisco. I'm running a startup. Uh, We've got about 35 employees, 40 employees. And exactly the thing that you just mentioned happened. Wi-Fi goes down. So now I've got eight salespeople that aren't making sales. Mm -hmm. It took us two days to figure out how to fix that. It was a total nightmare. And I was thinking to myself, it's the year 2013. I'm in downtown San Francisco. How is it that something as obvious as getting our, our Wi-Fi fixed and then kind of set up correctly. Why was it this painful, this difficult, and like such an old school experience? And throughout kind of the the life of, of running my last business, I kept an eye out for all of the sort of mundane kind of IT department type tasks that either weren't getting done or when we needed them done, it was really painful to do. And so even before I exited my last business, I was thinking in my head, I can't believe nobody's tried to tackle this. This is really obvious. And this is definitely what I'm going to do for my next company. I love that. I love that it comes from the personal experience and that you were on the lookout for it. I think, you know, it just shows the value of of having a repeat founder. I think you just notice the details that um, a first time founder might miss for opportunities. And so you talked about your previous company swarm out of San Francisco, and I'd love to know why did you come to New York for your next one? That's also a great question. You know, I think when I looked at starting a business that was looking to reinvent a more traditional service industry, I saw a lot of companies on the East Coast, particularly here in New York, that were doing a phenomenal job building and scaling companies that were applying a really intelligent technology layer to a traditional service business. So companies like Home Team, which provides in-home nursing, in-home senior care, managed by Q, which is sort of the market leader in modern office management solutions. And, you know, I looked at that and and, and, and saw the success those guys were having. And, you know, as I began to talk to VCs and, you know, prospective, you know, partners and, and potential team members in New York, I realized that New York is a place where people actually understand and respect a real business that generates real revenue and solves a real problem. And, you know, even if it 
if it looks and feels a bit operationally heavy at the beginning, there, there's a respect and, and kind of a support system for that here that I don't think you're going to find that in any other city. Yeah, I think you get uh, the camaraderie that you get when you're outside of the Bay. But I love that you bring up the point about business values. I think, you know, we're reading a lot about this week in the term sheet. There are all these companies who have these massive valuations and a point of zero. And I think people confuse financing with success when they have no path to profitability. And so I love that you really thought about that. It's one of the three reasons I love New York so much as well. Yeah, it's real people doing real things. Uh, and what's <laughs> not to love about that? So let's talk a little bit about Swarm. I'd love to know what your biggest takeaway was before you started Electric. What were you going to do differently? Jeez. Well, you know, the biggest one is you got to really think through the product that you're going to build through the lens of the problem that you're solving. And that might sound really obvious to a lot of people. But, you know, with Swarm, we saw an opportunity. And, and for those of you listening who aren't might not be familiar. Swarm was a company where we built uh, retail analytics, hardware, and software for small businesses. So if you if you ran a you know a small clothing boutique, you could buy our device. It would measure foot traffic going into and out of the store. It would link up with your um, point of sale data, so you could see things like foot traffic, sales, and conversion. Sounded really mm-hmm. cool. You know, toward the end, we when we got our arms around the product a little better, it you know it started to work really well. But a funny thing about it was, as cool as it sounded on the call when you were you know when you were selling the product, in the end of the day, if 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 the device shut off, if you took Swarm out of your store, your store would operate just fine without it. Now we were fortunate; we were able to build a build a pretty big business that that grew quickly, and and it was definitely something that was an awesome add on to an existing suite of technology in the store. But it wasn't a need to have, and so that was one of the things that you know when I started looking at the market opportunity in electric, I realized that you know look, a business can't function without its core technology platforms functioning mm-hmm. smoothly. Right. And when I say, you know, core technology platforms, I'm not talking about, you know, tech companies and, and the tech that you're building. But I mean, the average modern office, you walk in and you've got equipment in your conference room, you've got a Wi-Fi network, you've got a gazillion apps hooked up to your Gmail and you know all of these things. If that doesn't work right. You're not going to be able to get work done. Things aren't going to yeah. go well. So that, you know, to me, it was, you know, that was the biggest takeaway is, you know, you really, you really got to solve for an obvious pain that, that people want solved. No, I think that's really brilliant. I, you know, it goes back to this peace of mind mentality and, and our biggest uh, thing in Xamarin, Ionic and developer software was always the peace of mind component. And I think that's what resonates with business owners that they're so worried about, you know, finding bugs in their mobile software. And and that's not exactly what electric is like. You were, you're worried about the costs of, you know, not being able to run your business for a few hours, like you said, and it could be so detrimental. So I think it's, it's a really interesting switch. Yeah, absolutely. And I think a world that increasingly runs almost entirely on technology, I think that the modern business owner often hasn't thought about how they're going to keep all this stuff running mm-hmm. until there's some sort of an event where it's all of a sudden not working. And so, you know, we're trying to make it as accessible as possible. And and really get the product in front of folks before they have a show-stopping, you know, outage of some kind, and and really, really help them understand that hey, if you're using fifty different applications to run your business on, you really got to make sure all that stuff is secure, that it's, that it's running the, the way that it should, that that all the platforms are talking to each other the way that they should, and it was just mind blowing to us that nobody had really thought about that. Before. Yeah, definitely. And so, you know, we mentioned Swarm and Electrics. So you're obviously a serial entrepreneur. So I'd love to talk more about you 
and kind of where you're from and, and where'd you grow up? So I grew up on the mean streets of Fairfield, Connecticut. Uh, <laughs> so, you know, uh, yeah, a lot of uh, a lot of pastel polo shirts and and, and that sort of thing. But uh, no, it's that actually, is the I was, vibe I get from you. <laughs> totally. Um, no, it's actually I was born in Florida, but I don't tell people that. Because for some reason, <laughs> Florida has this weird stigma tied to it. I, I wonder what kind of what that even means, because Florida means to me vacation and Disney World. And and that's kind of just what I think about it. But well, you know what? After this, after we're done, just Google Florida man. And you'll oh, see God. a whole litany of news stories related <laughs> to this mythical creature called the Florida man. Okay, no, that is uh, I, I do love intrigue and a cliffhanger. So, and then, for my and listeners. Be like, oh, wait, that's why that's why Ryan doesn't say I'm from Florida. <laughs> okay, <laughs> so Florida man, what are some of your earliest memories? You know, what did you want to be when you grew up as a kid? Well, I was when I was a really little kid, uh, I actually thought being a trader on Wall Street was like the coolest thing. Um, <laughs> probably You're a like a five year old in suit and pinstripe suits and everything. Yeah, so actually, I, I found a I found a, an extra briefcase in my basement. I think I was in like fourth grade, and I just started putting my books for school in it. It was like one of those old school <laughs> ones with like the hard the hard shell on it and everything. I definitely did. Any of your classmates find that weird that you brought a briefcase to school? <laughs> yeah, like most of them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I I made it, it made me feel good. I don't know like why, but I was like, this is cool. I don't care what they think. I think this is cool. So. Did that for a bit. You know, I thought that I, I was fascinated with the stock market again, probably a byproduct of being a, a child in Connecticut in the late 90s and early 2000s. Yeah, seriously. But, uh, but no, and then, um, you know, as I got into, as I got into middle school and high school, I, I pretty much dreamed of doing exactly what I was doing now. You know, like my focus shifted to like, hey, I think, I think I generally have an understanding of how businesses work and I want to own and operate said businesses. Why do you think that happened? I mean, that's still pretty early on to think about entrepreneurship, you know, going from generic business stock trader man to business owner. Yeah, well, you know, it, it started with my interest in filmmaking and I realized that I wanted to like produce my own films. This is when I was in high school mm -hmm. and then the more that I thought about it, the more that I, that I looked into, hey, what, what would it take to like produce my own, you know, extreme sports documentary, which I ended up doing, the more I became fascinated with the process of marketing and distributing the film and putting deals together, like very, very quickly, I realized like what I what I was into is actually building and creating things, right? So whereas it started with something creative like filmmaking, that led me down a path of starting a business around that and realizing like, geez, the process of actually putting a product out to market and all that goes into that, that's that's what I like. I love that. I think it's really interesting you bring that up because projects that have nothing to do with business, but are entrepreneurial in nature, you know, like your filmmaking, I think they just teach you that you can do anything and you can really learn anything if you try really hard. I think it makes it seem not as scary. Perhaps it's my own personal experience with this podcast show when I was just like, I don't know anything about podcasting. And then I just realized you just figure it out. And I would imagine that to some extent, entrepreneurship has to be like that as well. Yeah, no, and I, th I think it's absolutely right and i think like some of the best entrepreneurs that i've met that have gotten there through non-traditional paths they tend to start with a product that is a passion of theirs and then that kind of becomes the gateway to realizing that you can basically build and create a process to get you there right so you can look at pretty much every major professional sport has an athlete that everybody knows about that isn't even in the top 10 or the top 25 but they've been able to use some degree of their their aptitude for the sport they're doing as a product 
to then hone their business chops. Someone I've talked to off and on over the years, a professional skier from Sweden, was pretty good back in the day, but like not amazing. Still probably one of the highest paid professional free skiers out there, largely because he just parlayed his early success into a string of businesses. Or you look at like uh, in tennis, Anna Kornikova was really famous for just being really on the ball with how she dealt with sponsors and parlaying endorsements into into much bigger things, even though I think if you look at her competition record, you know, far from a top 10, you know, legendary player. So mm-hmm. no, that's a really good point. And so I guess, is that a little bit of your own founding story? Since I know that you first started this sports video production company. So that was kind of like your passion project. Yeah, absolutely. Like I was saying before, like, oh, you know, I want to be a filmmaker. And then that quickly, as I got deeper down the path of figuring out like how to bring the films I was making to life, I realized that the same passion I was pursuing the actual production of the movie with, I could apply to the marketing and distribution of the films. And I had as much fun, if not more fun, doing that. And it was pretty much off to the races after that. Do you know what I find interesting, though? You know, so many people don't end up going to college. Well, not the start of that. So many people go to college, but a lot of entrepreneurs then say if they knew they wanted to be on for like maybe they didn't go to college. And so did that ever go through your mind since you started that first company when you were so young? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think the end of my middle to end of my senior year of college, when I had actually signed a distribution deal to get my first film distributed and started collecting, you know, real residuals after the release of it, you know, I'm looking at it going like, all right, 17 or 18 or whatever age I was at the time, I make enough money not to live really all that lavishly, but like I can put a roof over my head. I'm traveling around the world and doing what I want to do. Like why, you know, why would I go to college? My parents pushed me in the direction to to follow through with it and, and get an education, I think in part because it was unclear sort of what kind of runway I had with the documentary stuff I was doing, but mm-hmm. I'm glad I went. I look back on it. I look at, I look back at some of the things that I learned and the fact that I was able to continue to run a business while I was in school and, and I don't regret it, but when I think overall, you know, my, my take on education at, at this juncture, particularly now as I've been hiring a lot of kids post-college to work for my companies over the years, I think that asking a 17-year-old to declare a major and make one of the biggest financial decisions of their life is a preposterous thing to do. Yeah, I totally agree. Even a gap year or two. Or, you know, why don't we do a year of working, have an internship year or something to do, at least refine your focus a little bit. I just think, you know, when you go to college, you're just like, oh, just my freshman year, I took every kind of course because I was interested in everything. Yeah. Perhaps that's why I'm like a venture capitalist. I'm just interested in too many things. No, totally. Yeah. I mean, even by the time I graduated college and even post-college, I knew a shocking number of kids that were clearly pursuing a degree that they had no interest in, but they were mm-hmm. already so far down the path. That's like, you know, when you're halfway through a master's, it's like, oh, well, I don't like doing it, but I've already made it this far. I mean, that's a, that's a terrible way to start your adult life. And then to do that, and and graduate with you know potentially six figures worth of loans for something you're really not even that passionate about you know I, I kind of just go back to the same thing like you're you're putting an enormous level of decision making on the 17 year old that they're just simply not prepared to make yeah I agree and it's interesting you brought about hiring I'd love to know since you you now think that about education what do you then really look for and it sounds like you care more about how their resume or what they've accomplished. Correct me if I'm wrong, but that's kind of the vibe I'm getting from you. Yeah, you know, I mean, a lot of it just depends on exactly what you're hiring for. But Mm -hmm. if you take a step back and and get away from strictly looking at things like education and, and look at it through the lens of what makes for a good hiring philosophy, 
if you're trying to build a company that is going to be rooted at all in some form of culture and where you want to build a tight-knit group of highly engaged employees, then the move is always to not hire to fill a role, but to hire for things like culture fit. And you know, part of that is incumbent on the on the founder or the operators of the business to define what that, that culture is. But if you can hire, obviously, for the intangible things like work ethic and attitude and values, and you know what you're looking for, that's going to get you generally a heck of a lot further than just simply looking for a specific major. Now, that doesn't apply to every field or every type of job. But if, you know, if you're talking about startups, hiring for things like work ethic and values are, are going to get you a lot further than, than just simply saying, hey, I want like someone from MIT. So I'm interested in that because culture is a topic that I just come up time and time again on this podcast show, especially with this year and, you know, companies in Silicon Valley, like Uber, it just became such a ubiquitous topic. And I'd love to know when you're hiring on values and culture, what are the ones, maybe one to two, just to sum it up of like the really takeaways for electric that you want to culture start from the top that you want to bring down to the rest of the company? I think one or two would be tough because then if you're if you're <laughs> if, if you're only looking for those you're just gonna you're gonna over index in something that's not gonna work out well and I think that's probably what makes hiring so difficult is mm-hmm. if it was easy as simply finding somebody that worked really hard and had a good attitude I'd say okay you know there's the world's not full of those people but they're not exactly impossible to find but when you're really thinking about culture it's generally going to be you know you're looking at a list of easily five to ten things so you know if you narrow it down to five, like for us, you know, obviously work ethic and sort of a solutions driven positive attitude is super important. And we really look for people that are are detail oriented in the end when you're moving quickly, like you just, if you don't have your eye on the ball, it's, it's really going to impact a lot of things. You've got to have people that have an enormous amount of, of empathy. So for their, their coworkers for your customers that goes that goes a really long way and you know people that just that are that don't take themselves too seriously that is really important you know because I think you know if you can kind of roll all those things together and I know I'm leaving a few items out here but I think you probably kind of get where I'm going with with a lot of this which is you, mm-hmm. just, you want that you want that right combination of people that are going to get the job done and that are going to do it in a way that'll leave the sort of the office intact when you're done you know you can contrast that to I've, there's different business environments I've been in that will you know, maybe whittle that list down to a much smaller number and what you're left with in the end is really really aggressive cultures and and they might be extremely high performing but from my perspective that's not the kind of company we'd want to build yeah no that's a really good distinction and so finally before we end with our fun question, I'd love to know as a three-time entrepreneur, what do you think the most important quality to have for success is? Uh, it's easily uh, persistence. Mm, okay. <laughs> you know, because I think it's you know, hard, hard work obviously will get you far, but I think per- persistence above all else is really where so many success stories I've seen are made. It's just every good success story, or at least the ones that you want to root for, typically involves somebody who who never gave up and, and just continued to, to keep at things. And so, you know, there's going to be a lot of ups and downs, but you, you don't have to be the smartest person on the planet to at least show up every day and keep knocking on doors. I see. I call it uh, grit, but I think persistence is pretty much the I mean, way grit, to say that. grit sounds a lot more badass, but you know, I just, <laughs> just, you know, yeah, I like it. I like it. That's what, that's what I'm going to go with next time. Chris. Yeah, well, you know, good. Now you can say Chrissy's Chrissy's got grit. <laughs> so we're going to end with our fun questions. So since you are now a New Yorker, what is a New York startup that you really love? 
Well, I've got some some good friends of mine and disclosure. I'm also an investor in the company, uh, but there's a company called Stadium Goods and okay. they were launched two years ago. I can't reveal the the revenue figures, but it's it's a, <laughs> you know, approaching, if not surpassing a nine figure business. And they're wow. the largest retailer of rare and exclusive sneakers on the planet. So they have a really, really kick-ass retail store down in Soho over on Howard Street. But their website, which is where they do about 95% of their revenue, is you know, the place to go for you know, any, any old school pair of Air Jordans, Air Force Ones, Yeezys, you name it. And um, they've done some really impressive things. And in that market, it's really hard to tell a real from a fake. There's a ton of counterfeit sneakers. And they're the only place that, that sells these vintage and, and rare sneakers that has official partnerships with companies like eBay and, you know, other, other big marketplaces. So they're, they're killing it and uh, they sell cool stuff. Oh man, I love that you said that because that is so beyond my realm of expertise and my wheelhouse of, of things I would ever know about. So I'm, I'm really happy you brought that to my attention. Well, it's, I mean, if you're moving to New York, you're going to have to get your shoe game correct. So you might have to take a trip down there. Yeah, definitely. San Francisco has me wearing sneakers now because I used to be a New Yorker in heels and now I've, you know, given that up in my old age. So so well, definitely yeah. look out for some sneakers. San, San Francisco is not exactly a uh, setting the pace the for fashion. fashion <laughs> yeah, definitely true. Okay. And finally, if you could interview one founder, who would it, it be and why? The best way that I've thought about this is I think if you go back in history and think about what were some of the first venture-backed enterprises ever. Mm-hmm. It was actually. Do you, do you know? Do you know what they were? Oh no, I'm. I'm. But I'm thinking not that long ago. But you're a venture like capitalist. Early Come on. <laughs> I should know this, right? So believe it or not, and, and obviously the, um, the the later on the despicable acts that he committed, notwithstanding, but Christopher Columbus had was one of the first instances in recorded history of a of a venture backed business. So. You know, I wouldn't necessarily want to interview him in particular. I don't totally agree with uh, most of what he did once he actually set sail for America. But <laughs> a lot of the early explorers, you know, if you look at, if you look back in recorded history, how they actually set up the financing structure to buy the boats, you know, how the profits were distributed once that, you know, when they eventually found, you know, whatever the new world was that they were searching for. They were they looked and felt a lot like a modern venture deal, and you know to me that's that's extremely fascinating. You know if you're if you're Magellan and you're sitting there and you're going, all right, so like uh, I have an idea and I have some crazy homies who are with me, but I don't have any boats, and so I need like a few million dollars for that. Uh, like I'm I'm pretty sure I have this idea that like I'm going to go find a bunch of stuff and it's going to be worth a lot, but it's probably going to take like five to seven years for us to get anything back. What do you do, right? And if you think, even by today's standards, even with like, you know, billions of dollars going to venture every quarter, still to the average person, like it's a pretty preposterous thing to like raise millions of dollars for an idea on a napkin. And that's what these guys, that's what most, most explorers from back in the day, that's what they did. And, you know, they convinced wealthy individuals mm-hmm. uh, as well as, you know, states you know, Royalty, and, yeah. and so forth. Yeah. Uh, to back them with a lot of money and, and split the profits. So to me, I think that'd be that'd be a really cool conversation to have. I love that the OG, the OG ventures over yeah, there. Yeah, the true, the true OG. <laughs> <laughs> Just yeah, you know, quick trip across the Atlantic. Uh, no, I, I think that's a really interesting point of view. So thanks for sharing that. And it's definitely a new one. I think 
if I heard Jeff Bezos another time, I would have screamed. So it's great to hear some diversity on the show. Thanks for being on my show. It was really awesome to have you. Thanks. Well, uh, I'll see you out in New York. All right, that's a wrap on episode 50 of 52 Founders. Be sure to check out 52founders.com and follow us on Twitter at 52founders so you don't miss a thing. There's only two episodes left and I'll see you next week for episode 51.